Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the way that you have preserved our story for us. You've preserved your word for us that we might know you, that we might be near to you, that we might know the gospel, that we might know what it is that you're like and what it is that, that we are like, our need for you, our need for salvation. And I pray as we work out this text tonight that you would meet us in this place, that you by your spirit would do what you alone can do, which is to convict our hearts and to comfort them as well. We need both of those things from you tonight. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Uh, so the three words that make me the most nervous in the world are these. God told me. Here's what I mean. So when I was a freshman at Carolina, I really struggled. I uh, had a really hard first semester. I've talked about this over the years where I live with my best friend. Uh, I got really depressed and was in this bad relationship with a girl in high school. He got really, really OCD, anxious, and was questioning his salvation all the time. And we lived together in a little small room that's now the honors dorm. It used to be called Snowden. It was the honeycombs. And it was a disaster of a first semester. So I started thinking, okay, it went so bad. I was a Christian. I had become a Christian freshman year of high school. But I started thinking, this, had gone, this has gone so bad, so badly. And I grew up a huge Clemson fan. And I really wanted to go to Clemson but didn't get scholarship there. I kind of ended up at Carolina both because of a scholarship and because, really, the honest reason was I was, wanted to date this girl back home an hour it was closer so I'm wrestling with this decision, what do I do? And I'm still at this place where I had no understanding of like reform theology or really like a biblical understanding of the concept of God's will. How do we know God's will for our lives? How do we know what God wants us to do? What his plan for our lives is? And so I would be driving as I'm like, the, the first semester ended, I was really trying to figure this thing out. Do I try to transfer or not? And I would be driving and I'd be praying, like, Lord, just give me a sign. And I'd pull up behind a car, and I'd have, like, a Clemson bumper sticker. And I'm like, yes, Clemson it is. Then I'd make a right at the stoplight, and I'd pull up behind another car, and there was a Carolina bumper sticker. And I was like, dang it. This thing is so agonizing. What do I do? And ended up trying to go to Clemson, stay for a week. It's a long, it's a long story. Ended up back home and then came back to Carolina my sophomore year. But that's the reason I wanted God to tell me. Just tell me what to do. And I was desperate for any kind of sign, and maybe you've been there, maybe you are there. And what I want to do tonight is I want to take our passage, and I want to think about how God, how God works in our lives. Because the theme so far in Exodus, we looked at last week how God's people were in slavery and how there is significance for us, that we are all, Jesus said, when you sin, you're, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. But part of what's happening in the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, really all the way till the end of chapter 2, the question that, that the book is at, that Exodus is asking you to ask is, where is God? Does he care about his people? What is he going to do? What does he want them to do? We're thinking about this idea of God's will. And the way that you and I typically think about it is we want God just to, we want a direct line to, to, to heaven where God just spells everything out for us. And what I, want, what I hope to convince you of tonight is that's not how it works. That often God's work in our lives is much more mysterious, much more unknown, and yet there are things he's revealed to us. And we're going to look at them one by one. And the way that I want to do this is, what is God's will for your life? I'm going to tell you God's will for your life tonight. It's this. It's summed up by Micah, another prophet of God, in chapter 6 of his book, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Three things. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly 
with your God. That's God's will for your life. Now, here's how I want to unpack this. So three things we see in this passage. We see first these courageous women doing justice. The second thing we see is these other two courageous women showing kindness. And the last thing we see is Moses, what God's doing and showing him what it means to humbly walk with him. So that's what we're going to do first. To do justice. Um, It's been said, maybe in a sexist way, behind every good man is a better woman. Now, a lot of us can relate to that. A lot of us have moms that were rock stars. I have a wife who was my rock and my anchor. Uh, Some of us have teachers that were super impactful, sisters. You know, there's women in our lives, if you're a man, that really have shaped you and made you who you are. But that, that idea, that wisdom is certainly true of our text. In a way that God loves to do throughout all of Scripture, the heroes of our text are these strong, courageous, and faithful women. Um, in fact, we could say the exodus would not have happened apart from these first women we're going to look at, these midwives. These midwives who defied Pharaoh, who defied the decree of the king of Egypt because they feared God far more than they feared Pharaoh or cared about their lives. So what did they, what did they do? If you, in case you miss it in this text, the king of Egypt had ordered these midwives. He had told them any male Hebrew who was born, any baby's boy, I want you to kill And basically, the reason is the best way to stop a potential movement that they were afraid of is to kill the baby boys who would become fathers and continue so that the Hebrews wouldn't continue to be fruitful and multiply. I think the first question for us is, have you ever been asked to do something that you knew was wrong, but you were so afraid that you did it anyway? Have you ever been in a position like these midwives where maybe... Maybe with friends, you're trying to keep up your reputation, or maybe at a job where you're trying to keep your job, or you're asked to do something that you know is wrong, but you did it anyway because you were afraid. You were afraid of losing the relationships. You were afraid of losing money. You were afraid of losing something valuable to you. And I just want to point out that these women, that was the easy path. Like by them saying no, by them disobeying the order of Pharaoh, They didn't just put their positions at risk. They really put their very lives at risk. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, uh, it's it's Black History Month, and I've been thinking about, so I went to this uh, private high school in Sumter, South Carolina, that was founded really because of desegregation. And so I just didn't, for two reasons, I didn't get any history, especially when it comes to uh, civil rights and that whole movement. Uh, part of it was, I just said, my school was founded really on the heels of desegregation, and that way it has some racist roots. And the second reason was I had a football coach for a history teacher. I don't know if you ever had a football coach for a teacher. Um, I just, we just didn't learn a lot. My, my guy would literally open the textbook and just read to us, and it was brutal. And somehow this wasn't in the textbook, because I think about this idea of defying because you fear God more than you are afraid of what the world around you is telling you. I think about that quote from Martin Luther King Jr. where he said, for evil to succeed, for evil to succeed, all it needs is for good men and women to do nothing. For evil to succeed, all it takes is for good men and women to do nothing. And what I want you to see is that these midwives did something. They did something. Uh, They feared God literally and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. I think about... Rosa Parks, again, didn't learn this. I was reading about this today. I mean, I knew her name, but I hadn't really ever read the story. And I was reading about her courage today. And part of how that, the civil rights movement even started was because Rosa Parks did something. She feared God 
more than she feared that bus driver. She was so burdened by the burden of her people and by the the injustice of her own life that she did something, right? And really, she didn't know what was going to happen, but it, it turned into something huge, far bigger than her. What I want you to see is the fear of God isn't simply isn't simply the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is actually also the beginning of justice. Now, to fear God doesn't mean we're afraid of him, but to fear God does mean that his words and his ways and his character is so heavy and weighty in our lives that it changes everything. And often it's costly for us. It demands obedience of us that is costly. What is God's will for your life? Here's the first thing. God's will for your life is to be someone who cares about and does justice. To be someone who cares about the injustice that's happening around you. And there are a lot of them. It doesn't just, you know, it's not just the racism that still is pervasive in our country. There are lots of, there's a lot of injustice that's happening all around us right now. And here's what I want you to see is you can care about justice and not love God, but you cannot love God and not care about justice. Do you see that? You can care about justice and have nothing to do with God. But part of what this passage is inviting us to wrestle with is you can't love God or say that you love God and not care about, not get involved with justice. Well, here's the question. How do you begin to care about justice? This is a question for my life. I am not preaching to you as someone who's figured this out. I am preaching to you as someone who is humbly trying to wrestle with this question in my own life. Please know that. I don't have this figured out by any stretch of the imagination. But four things I was thinking about. How do you begin to care about justice? Four quick things. First, you have to see injustice. You have to see it around you. Where is injustice happening around you? And then second, you have to listen. You have to listen to the people who are saying they're experiencing injustice. And you have to listen in a way where you don't roll your eyes. And you have to listen in a way where it moves you to care and moves you to listen and listen and listen some more. Three, you have to ask. You have to ask the question of, how can I get involved? What is a baby step of involvement for me? I know I can't, I, we're limited, finite beings. We can't do everything. We can't care equally about every single injustice that's happening around us. But we have to ask, what is it? Is there a particular one that maybe connects with me that, that my heart is moved to? And we have to ask that question, what would me getting involved look like? And the fourth is you have to invite Jesus and friends who have more experience than you into this conversation. And even pray, Jesus, where... where Will you give me more of a heart for the injustice that's happening? Will you give me more of a heart to be involved? Will you give me the courage to, be, to get involved? So the first, what is God's will for your life? It's to care about justice, to do justice. Second, the second thing that Micah tells us that we see in this passage is to love kindness, to show kindness. Again, we could say on the first hand, the exodus would not have happened apart from these midwives courageously caring about the injustice of the death of these baby boys. But the second thing we're going to see is it also would not have happened apart from the kindness of two women, Moses, uh, Moses' sister Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter. Look at the, again, if you missed it, just in case. So Moses is born, you know the story, maybe you don't know the story, and his mom nurses him for three months until she can't hide him anymore because he's supposed to be dead. And so in an act of desperation, she puts him in a basket, she paints the whole thing as best she can, basically with asphalt and tar, and she pushes him into the Nile River, praying for a miracle. Now, what I've missed, I've, you know, I've read this passage a million times. I've missed this the first go around. And she had a little helper with her, Moses' older sister, Miriam. And she's watching at the banks of the Nile. And she's watching and waiting to see what's going to happen to this little, her baby brother. 
And as she's watching, basically, in God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter at the very same time goes to bathe in the river. If you didn't catch this, and she sees, she probably hears something in this basket crying. And she gathers the basket and opens it up. And much to her shock, no doubt, was a beautiful little Hebrew baby boy. And Miriam, who again is watching from afar, rushes over to offer help. And through that, in a, in a way that only God can do from behind the scenes, the Pharaoh's daughter tells her to run back and get someone to nurse the baby. And she runs back and gets Moses' mom, her mom. Um, this is like the true and better bird box. Have you seen bird box? You thought bird box was good. Exodus is going to blow your mind. Um, but again, if the, exodus, if the exodus would not have happened if not for these other two courageous women who, who showed great kindness. On the one hand, think about it for me with a second. It's the kindness of a sister, the kindness of a sibling. And on the other hand, it's the kindness of adoption. It's the kindness of caring and bringing someone into your home that will die, will not flourish without that. Again, the question for us is, have you ever had someone show kindness to you or show another word that we could, the other translation is mercy to you in a way that changed you, in a way that changed your life? Think first about just the kindness of a sibling caring for the well-being of their brothers and sisters. Uh, again, Moses, this wouldn't have happened apart from the kindness of his sister. I think a lot of my, my dad's family, he's got three sisters. And I used to roll my eyes at this. They do, they still do every year for the last 20 years. They do this annual siblings retreat. And I always thought, that seems dumb. Right? Because I have a sister and she is amazing. But, like, I'm not going to do a yearly retreat with her. I don't know. And maybe you have siblings, and you're like, would you really want to spend, you know, time away every year with your siblings? Like, that's why we have friends, because we can choose our friends. You can't choose your siblings kind of a thing. But then my dad said something. He said something to me a few years ago that kind of got me thinking about it. And he said this. He said, if you think about it, your siblings know you for far longer than anyone else in your life. They know you longer than your parents because your parents are eventually going to die. They know you longer than your spouse because your spouse typically entered your life 20, you know, 21, 22, somewhere in there, 25, 30, whenever, later. That your sibling, we are in this unique position as siblings to show kindness, a lifetime of kindness. And the question for us is, if you have a sibling, are you taking advantage of that lifetime of kindness? Maybe some of you are here because of the kindness, the loving kindness of a sibling. But it's also the kindness of adoption. Again, Moses wouldn't have happened apart from the kindness of Pharaoh's daughter taking him in. I think about Russell Moore as one of my favorite writers and speakers. And I, he tells a story of the first, uh, his first son that they adopted from Russia. And he says they went in. It was one of those classic, awful Russian orphanages where it was awful conditions. The children weren't touched at all. And they met the, the boy who was going to be their son. And he said as they left the room and they were trying to get some of the paperwork done, he heard this cry from the other room. And he said when he heard that cry, he knew he was a father. And he knew he had a son. And in, in, in adoption, there's an incredible kindness that's shown. So first, there's injustice happening all around that God wants us to care enough to get involved. But also, there are opportunities for kindness all around us. Listen, you know, college is an incredible opportunity to show kindness. I was thinking about this. Uh, especially if you're an upperclassman, you have a unique position to show kindness to freshmen. Right? Like, my life, I told you about that freshman first semester. I was 
miserable. I was so depressed, not talking to anyone. But there was this one senior, his name was Stephen Kelly. He's actually a PCA elder in Sumter now. And I've probably told you this before, but we had this one class together, upper course religion class. And before every class, he would say, hey, I'd love to get breakfast for you. And he would, we would either go together or sometimes he would just go on his own in the, in the mornings I couldn't make it or the mornings I was running behind. And he would bring me every, you know, every class, like every Friday morning, he would bring me a country fried steak biscuit and a sweet tea. <laughs> it's amazing, right? When you're depressed, it's really the simple things that matter. Just a little bit of good fried food, a little bit of sweet tea. It's just God's gift for depression sometimes. Sorry, my voice cracked. Apparently I haven't gone through uh, puberty yet. <clears throat> Soon. <laughs> soon you guys um but just here's what i was thinking about what would RUF look like if everyone here made it their mission to show kindness to your roommate your annoying loser of a roommate you're really the loser you know the gospel like you're the loser that's the twist part but your roommate who grates on your nerves who you wish you didn't live with what would it look like for your heart to turn to them, to want to show them kindness? Um, what would it look like if our campus, if every Christian here made it their mission just to show kindness to all of their unbelieving friends? Just to like laugh at the movies? Just to share a meal? Just to engage and show, just have a heart to show kindness? I, I had the the privilege, you all know I love going to movies by myself. It's kind of my sad hobby. And so I got to go see, I guess it was two weeks ago. When my goal every year is to see every Oscar-nominated film. And I had two left, uh, Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody. Saw Bohemian Rhapsody with the staff. It was a good time. And then went to Green, uh, Green Book by myself. And there was a line in Green Book. If you know the story, it's, it's a story about this accomplished African-American pianist who's incredibly lonely and this totally opposite um, Brooklyn Italian guy who works the nightclub scene. But the accomplished pianist wants to do a tour in the South, and he hires Tony, this Brooklyn Italian guy, to be his driver and to navigate the difficulties of just the racism of the South. But toward the end of the movie, they share this, they share this hotel room together, and that's what the Green Book is. It was uh, basically a traveling guide for, um, for black families in the 60s. We got it. My family's in the 60s to navigate hotels and restaurants that were safe where they weren't going to get murdered, where they weren't going to get hassled by cops. But there's this one scene where they're sharing this broken down hotel room. And Tony says this line that I've been thinking about ever since. He just looks over at his friend and he says, the world is full of lonely people waiting for someone to make the first move. The world is full of lonely people waiting for someone else to make the first move. And part of God, I know God's will for your life. <laughs> I, know, I know God's will for your life. God told me that what he wants for you is to be someone who loves to show kindness. And that means for us, because God has shown us kindness in Christ that changes everything, that we're the ones that get to make the first move. We're the ones that get to make the first move in showing kindness, showing mercy. The last thing I want you to see, to walk humbly with your God. This is the third part, the last part of God's will for your life, to walk humbly with your God. And this is the the greater part of chapter 2 that we read. Again, if you're not familiar with the story, Moses grows up in Pharaoh's daughter's house. uh, And he's in this incredibly unique position where not only is he familiar with the Hebrew world because that's his birthright. And his mom nursed him until he was of certain age. And then he moved in 
to Pharaoh's daughter's house, but he's also in a unique position to be part of the power and wealth and privilege of Egypt. And even more so, he's in a unique position where God has providentially placed him is to see the injustice that is happening to his own people. And so that's what happens. He's, he's out one day, and he probably daily saw things like this, the abuse and oppression and unkindness. But he sees this Egyptian person beating a fellow Hebrew. And you saw what happened. He loses his temper. We're going to see throughout Exodus as part of Moses' struggle. And he kills the man, and he buries him in the sand. Then news breaks out, news spreads, Pharaoh hears of it, Moses has to flee. He goes to Midian, where he, is to, he meets his wife and is taken in. But what is God doing with Moses? And this is the question we have sometimes. What is God doing in my life? What is he doing in this, in this place with Moses? And I think the question Moses is asking, maybe this is the third question we could ask ourselves, is have you ever done something so awful that you felt like your life was over? I mean, college for me was getting involved in things that I never thought I would, especially when I became a Christian and went to college. I got involved with things. I did things I never saw myself doing. And there are points and there are times, part of my depression throughout college was wrestling with that. How could I do something like that? How could I make that decision? How could I make that choice? And we wrestle with the shame of that. We wrestle with the, just the crushing reality of that, the depressing reality of that. And this is where Moses is. How can he ever go back to Egypt, Right? How can he ever face Egypt again? What is he going to do with his life now? I mean, he had everything laid out for him, and now he's a shepherd in the middle of nowhere, you know, in smallest town, South Carolina, you've ever been in. And that's where he is. What is he going to do? And this is where God begins to come into the story. He's been there the whole time, moving behind the scenes. We have to remember that. God is at work, whether we can see it or not. But this is where he begins to come more clearly into the picture. And what he's doing with Moses is he's humbling him. He is preparing him to be the rescuer. He is preparing him to care about injustice. He is showing kindness to him so that Moses might show kindness to the people. He is humbling him. He's showing him he's not as great as he thought. But that God is. And the sweet spot is when we know both of those things. That you and I are worse than we think. But God is far better. That you and I are We could use some choice language. But God is incredible in his faithfulness and in his love and in his grace. There's a story out of Martin Lloyd-Jones' life that I love where he's, Martin Lloyd-Jones is, if you don't know that name, he was one of the best preachers ever. And he was incredibly gifted. He left his life as a doctor to pursue a call to ministry a little bit later in life. But there was a moment in his life that I love where he was preaching. He was new to the whole thing, but he was clearly gifted, just mesmerizing in the pulpit. And he was preaching at something like a Presbyterian meeting one day. And an older, wiser man pulled him aside afterward and said, listen, there is no doubt you're an amazing preacher, but here's my fear for you. God hasn't humbled you yet. God hasn't humbled you yet. Well, Jones went on to write this. Humility became a huge part of his theme because God did eventually humble him. And here's what he said. It's in your handout. He said, the man who really believes in the holiness of God and who knows his own sinfulness and the blackness of his own heart, the man who believes in the judgment of God and the possibility of hell and torment, the man who really believes that he himself is so vile and helpless that nothing but the coming of the Son of God from heaven to earth, heaven to earth and is going to the bitter shame and agony and cruelty of the cross could ever save him and reconcile him to God. This man or this woman is going to show all that in his whole personality. 
He is a man or woman who is bound to give the impression of meekness. He or she is bound to be humble. Our Lord reminds us here, he's talking about what it means to be poor in spirit. Our Lord reminds us here that if a man is not humble, we are to be very wary of him. If a man is not humble, we are to be very wary of him. I think about one of my favorite scenes in Narnia where Aslan's in Prince Caspian at the end where he's looking at the children who've experienced some, some amazing things. And he has that line where he basically says to them, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, said Aslan, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. What is God's will for your life? Can't tell. I wish I could tell you. It'd be fun if I could tell you who you're going to marry, what career you're going to end up in, where you're going to live, how many kids you're going to have, the kind of vacations you would go on, the kind of home you would live in, the kind of car you would drive. Can't tell you any of that, but what I can tell you is this is God's will for your life to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And can I tell you that a lifetime of those three things, a lifetime of caring about the injustice happening around you, a lifetime of loving and seeking every opportunity you can to show kindness, and a lifetime of knowing that there is a God who humbly walks with you and with me in grace and wisdom and love, that is a life well lived. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that your son is the perfect picture of what that looks like. When we think about Jesus, we know he's the true and better Moses, and we thank you that Jesus shows us what a life devoted to justice, a life devoted to showing kindness, and a life of radical dependence on you looks like. And Lord, would you make us more like him? We know that your will for us is to make us more like Jesus in these ways. So would you do that in our midst tonight? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and sing with me the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanks so much for coming up. Hope to see you next week.